You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Kristen Cobus Dumay, a historian, a writer, and a professor at Calvin University, my alma mater, as well as the author of the really phenomenal book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Friends, this is a really timely book, one that I found to be challenging, encouraging, and extremely informative. And as usual, in this conversation, we can really only begin to scratch the surface. And so I do highly recommend going and purchasing this book for yourself, especially if you are listening to this episode when it comes out, because this week the paperback version released. And as a community, we are all working together to help sell this book so that it can hopefully reach the best sellers, the new New York Times bestsellers list and reach even more people with this important message, this important history of our faith tradition in America. And so in this conversation, we begin to explore some of the book, talking about culture, talking a little bit about history, how we are formed, and it's just a really timely book for what we are experiencing here in America as a church and as a nation. So friends, I don't want to give anything away. So let's go ahead and dive into the conversation. And of course, as soon as you are done listening, go check out the book at the link below. Kristen, welcome to the Rua Space podcast. It's such an honor to get to chat with you today. I had you as a professor many years ago, and so seeing you today brings me back. Oh, thank you for having me. It's great. It's great to reconnect like this. So your book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, has been growing and expanding and reaching the entire world, it seems. And I found it to be challenging and encouraging. I was wondering if you could start us off just a little bit of your journey of coming to this book. It seems very timely, which is perfect. Uh, but tell us a little bit about how you came to it and, and why now. Sure. Okay. But first I have to have a, uh, ask you a question. So, uh, what class did you have with me? I had a history class with you. I believe it was the spring of my freshman year, which was 2006, 2007. So I okay. think it was because I, I know I went to Israel my sophomore year and I'm uh -huh. pretty sure I had you as a professor before that. So I think it was, um, more, I don't know if it, I think it was maybe a world history class, Okay. but okay. Yeah, because I remember we talked about things from all over. So it must have yeah, been some sort of That was the world history, history class. Okay, okay, so then you're off the hook here. Uh, <laughs> because I'll, I'll tell you the story. The idea for this book actually came from um, my Calvin students. And it was right around that time. So your cohort. Uh, I, I don't remember. I wasn't really keeping track. So I'm guessing it was 2005 or 2006. So I was a, a very new professor myself. And I was teaching a U.S. history course. And I decided to lecture one day on Teddy Roosevelt. And I did that because I wanted to show students how gender worked in history. It was something that I had never learned in undergrad and I discovered in graduate school. And so I wanted to show them how ideas of masculinity and femininity changed over time and how they're, they're linked to economic shifts and to foreign policy and to race and religion. And, and Teddy Roosevelt is such a perfect example for this, right? The rough rider, he recreates himself out in the West and 
And so I, I, I lectured on Roosevelt and after class, a couple of guys came up to me and said, professor Dumay, there is a book that you have to read. And that book was John Eldridge's wild at heart. And so I listened to them. I'd heard of it, um, kind of ignored it. It was, it was enormously popular back then. It, it would sell more than 4 million copies. Um, and so I went down to a family Christian bookstore and bought a copy and I uh, opened it up and saw immediately what they were talking about. It had a quote from Teddy Roosevelt right up front and went on to sketch this very kind of militant militaristic conception of Christian masculinity. And so I, um, I, I, I was curious right off the bat because I, I noticed that there weren't, weren't a lot of Bible verses. There wasn't much, you know, theology in the book. Uh, Eldridge looked to Hollywood heroes, to Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, to mythical warriors, to cowboys, to soldiers as his inspiration for what Christian masculinity looked like. Um, now, this was also, again, 2005, 2006, early years of the Iraq war. And so I was seeing all this survey data come my way that evangelicals, white evangelicals were far and away more likely to support the Iraq war, preemptive war in general, to condone the use of torture, embrace aggressive foreign policy. And so just like historians had asked of Roosevelt, I asked the same questions of white evangelicalism. What does one have to do with the other? This vision of militant quote unquote, Christian masculinity with this aggressive foreign policy. And that really started me down the, this path. I ended up setting it aside for a time for a, a couple of reasons. Uh, but then it was in the fall of 2016, in light of the candidacy of uh, Donald Trump, in the wake of the Access Hollywood tape release, that all of a sudden this, this research came back to me. And the words that I heard um, evangelicals using to defend their support for, for Donald Trump in that moment were eerily reminiscent of the rhetoric that I had um, come across in not just Eldridge's book, but um, dozens of other books in the early 2000s on what it meant to be a Christian man, um, especially rhetoric like around Trump. He was their ultimate fighting champion. Mm -hmm. He would do what needed to be done. He was going to protect Christianity. The ends would justify the means. And that was very familiar to me. And that's really the origins of this book. Yeah, and, and I, I appreciate the timeliness of it because this has been something that I've been wrestling with lately. I remember just a number of months ago, the, um, I, whatever we want to call it, a riot, an insurrection, this attack mm -hmm. on the Capitol, and just the shocking realization of what was happening, especially in light of so many police shootings of, of black men and women. And here are a bunch of, you know, white men and women, but storming our government buildings and sort of getting away with it. And, yeah. and just the connection so much of that has with faith. And so you have this, you have this quote that it says, how could family values in quotes conservatives support a man who flouted every value they insisted they held dear? Can you, I mean, this is what your whole book is about, right? Yes. And so we, first I would just tell people, go get the book and read it because in a short conversation like this, we can only begin to scratch the surface, but sort of to begin to answer that question, how, how do we get to a place like this where the foundations of the faith in Jesus, a man who died, killed by the system, ends up in that place, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, in, um, 
uh, in 2016. And um, from that point on, a lot of commentary around white evangelical support uh, for Trump uh, kind of hinged on this idea of betrayal, right? How could evangelicals betray their values? These are family values, evangelicals. This is the self-proclaimed moral majority. How could they? And what I realized as a historian was that that, um, that wasn't the correct framing, that that demonstrated a, a misconception of what core values actually were within white evangelicalism. Mm. And when I look back historically, I could see that at the center of uh, family values, evangelicalism was always the assertion of white patriarchal power. And the white is important there. And, uh, and, and I should add white Christian patriarchal power, right? The, the Christian, this was when I, when I traced this back historically, I saw that the cold war was a, a really important context for, um, the surfacing of this particular identity, uh, where, um, and so that was linked to Christian nationalism. We needed strong Christian men, American men to defend faith, family, and nation. And God filled men with testosterone so they could fulfill this role and gender difference or gender traditionalism, but very, very distinct opposite roles. were kind of at the foundation of this, uh, this understanding of, of the God ordained social order. And for men, they were to be providers and protectors. Um, but again, this is Cold War context, Cold War militarism. So to be a protector meant uh, like a military protector and using violence to, to protect, um, again, faith, family, and nation. And that that was this, this critical backdrop. Uh, and also uh, the, the civil rights movement uh, was relevant here. And particularly for Southern uh, uh, evangelicals, uh, their status quo was was absolutely disrupted here. And so we see the assertion once again of, of white patriarchal authority in terms of defending um, uh, Christian schools, which were essentially segregation academies, the authority of parents, the authority of fathers to um, white fathers only <laughs> to choose, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the education for their children. Um, and, and then law and order politics also, right. Um, to get back to one of your examples, like who has permission to use violence and to what ends and, and what sort of violence is justified and, and sanctioned. And so that was the historical context. And once I understood that this is really about the assertion of white Christian patriarchal power, um, so many pieces clicked into, into place in this, in this story. And, and fear, and I, well, okay, so first I, I, I think that reframing is really helpful because it sounds, it, it seems to me that a little like what we're saying is in the mind of certain systems, the two don't conflict, right? That it actually is the very foundation of it. And it isn't only theological, but it's now cultural and they've been yes. mixed and wed together. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly. And, and can you talk a little bit then about the role fear plays in this? Like, you know, when yeah. you were talking, you mentioned the Cold War. And I know at one point you were talking about President Eisenhower and Billy Graham. And you said that you were reunited in the conviction that Christianity could help America wage the Cold War. And this idea of the Christian nation and being sort of embattled and entrenched and needing defense. Can you talk a little bit about that shift and the role fear seems to be deeply yeah. embedded in this. 
Absolutely. So when I started on this project, I had a kind of working assumption that, that um, yes, fear was very important, but the way it was usually framed, uh, certainly in recent years to explain uh, white evangelical politics and sometimes you know, strident politics was evangelicals were so afraid. Right. They were afraid of losing their religious liberties. They were afraid of demographic decline. They were afraid of radical Islam. But if you stretch, if you stretch this back, you can see there's a long tradition. They were afraid of communism, afraid of secular humanism, afraid of feminism and you know, fill in the blanks. And when I looked again to the history and I started looking at how this actually played out in specific circumstances, what I came to see that in the case of, uh, for, for instance, Jerry Falwell Sr.'s Thomas Road Baptist Church, or Mark Driscoll's Mars Hill Church, or even this like, crazy set of stories about um, uh, fake ex-Muslim terrorists who took the evangelical speaking circuit by storm post 9-11, right? Kind of inciting fear that in many cases we had, we had to flip the script. It wasn't that evangelicals were so afraid because of threats. I mean, certainly fear was real, but often uh, this militancy was there first and the fears were stoked, were actively stoked by powerful leaders usually um, in order to, to consolidate their own power. This is what we see with Jerry Falwell uh, Sr. This is what we see with Mark Driscoll. They are inciting fear in the hearts of their followers. Don't go to that church down the street. Your, your very soul will be in jeopardy, right? Be wary of outsiders. They are out to get us. If you are not with us, you are against us. They use this rhetoric of war all the time because in war, absolute loyalty is demanded, right? And, and, and they did demand it. And I, when I saw how that played out, I realized that yes, the fears in the hearts of followers, it was real. It was real. People really believed they were very afraid and they gave their support, their loyalty to their leaders, um, their evangelical leaders, their political leaders, but that fear was not naturally occurring. It wasn't organic. It was actively stoked by men, usually men who wanted to, um, enhance their own power. And that was another one of those, those, when that clicked for me, again, I could see that pattern in terms of religious institutions and also in terms of broader um, politics of the religious right. So how does something like that become so foundational? You know, we talk about individual leaders that do this, um, but you would think there would be you know, when we talk about cultural liturgies, liturgies of the church, and, and by the way, friends, if you go to church, your church has liturgy. Like even if you are quote unquote non-liturgical, if you have a sermon, that's a liturgy. So, and these are just things that shape us, right? Different mm -hmm. participatory elements that shape who we are. So how did these come to sort of dominate the, the landscape of evangelicalism? Because you're, and again, this is a, a 300 pages about how this <laughs> yes. really happened. So um, whatever answer you give as we talk about this won't be the full picture, but just curious, maybe on a, on a one level up, how, mm -hmm. how theologies and culture and ideas like this begin to take over to the point that it's the accepted way of a large group of people. 
Yeah. So you can find these, these teachings uh, being preached by pastors, you know, from pulpits and you can find them in uh, kind of these, these formal spaces, but for this book, Jesus and John Wayne, it's really a study of popular evangelicalism. It's a study of evangelical popular culture, consumer culture. So I look at Christian radio. I look at the the massive Christian publishing industry. Um, When you think about what it means to be an evangelical, evangelical leaders themselves have um, traditionally privileged a theological definition. So they'll say to be an evangelical is to uphold the authority of the scriptures, to focus on the centrality of the cross. um, So crucicentrism, conversionism, this born again experience, and then activism and evangelism, right? And that you check those boxes, you're an evangelical. I, I found that that was a limited um, understanding of what it means to be an evangelical as a historian of recent America, right? Because if you use that rubric, um, the majority of black Protestants in America check those boxes. Mm-hmm. So um, are they evangelicals? Well, the problem is the ma- vast majority of black Protestants do not identify as evangelicals, right? Because they understand there is more to being evangelical uh, as we understand the term today than just checking some theological boxes. And that's where I shifted my focus to understanding evangelicalism as a as a popular, popular, popular culture, as a consumer culture. So to be an evangelical isn't necessarily to ascribe to particular theological beliefs. In fact, survey data shows that evangelicals, many evangelicals are fairly theologically illiterate, mm-hmm. right? But I, I understand that to be an evangelical is to be immersed in this evangelical culture. Did you grow up listening to focus on the fam- family radio in your home? Did you, um, are you, you know, do you attend an evangelical church? Do you attend a, a small group? Do you buy things at Christian bookstores back when we actually had Christian bookstores, right? Um, and this popular evangelicalism, many people are exposed to hours and hours of this every week, right? Radio, television, um, your personal devotionals, right? All this, this popular evangelicalism, as opposed to maybe an hour on Sunday, uh, with a sermon and maybe the sermon's 20 minutes or half hour. Right. Um, but then this, this popular evangelicalism also shapes ministers and you're right, pastors, and it shapes the content of these sermons. So I'm really looking at, at this popular evangelicalism. And then I take it seriously. I don't look at it as fluff. I don't look at it as something off on the side. Um, I, I move it right to the center of um, uh, the role it plays in forming evangelical identity, of forming what it means to be an evangelical and the effects that it has ultimately on shaping evangelical theology as well. Um, so, so Jesus and John Wayne really is a history of popular evangelicalism. And I think that's why it's connecting so viscerally with so many readers who, you know, I get so many letters, um, nearly all of which start off with some version of this is the story of my life. Right. And then they, they literally show me pictures of their bookshelves that have all the books on that I talk about. They'll talk about, you know, Oh, I, I attended promise keepers. I, um, you know, I grew up listening to Amy Grant. I did, you know, like this is their life. It's, it's the, it's religion as kind of lived experience. And what you were describing there made me think then of the cycle that this can form, especially nowadays with the way social media works. Like I I really enjoyed the documentary. I think it was called The Social Dilemma where they're sort of talking a little bit about how social media worked. And you think about the past year, and of course, depending on when you're listening to this, it could be recent or a little further back, Mm -hmm. but the pandemic when we were separated from face to face, 
social media became even bigger. And so many of the ways these platforms work are to funnel us into the things we want to see. And yes. I see you describing the Christian bookstore and the different conferences that when that's all you're hearing, it seems to be that it can then shape you in sort of any direction it wants because that's all that you're hearing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, so evangelicalism, and, and, and then I, I point to how, you know, some people are wholly immersed in this, right? They only listen to Christian radio. They only read Christian books there. You know, I know some of these people I grew up in, in those spaces. And then there are other people who just kind of dabble, you know, they read a book here or there. And I think that's important to, to acknowledge, right? There are some people, so rather than, are you a real evangelical or not? I, I, I think in terms of how immersed have you been within this, this culture, how much has it shaped you? Um, so, so what's interesting now is the role that social media is playing and how it, uh, it changes things, but not entirely. Um, on the one hand, it, it, it makes it possible um, to, to live in echo chambers, but white evangelicals had already kind of perfected that, right? Through, through this um, earlier, just the, the evangelical subculture that they developed, this, these distribution networks, these churches, these organizations, again, Christian radio, Christian television. So these echo chambers were alive and well for decades in, in evangelical communities and, and pastors and evangelical leaders promoted this, right? Um, don't read secular um, news sources, uh, go to Christian news sources. Don't read secular books. Don't read secular psychology, right? Read James Dobson. Don't listen to the top 40. You know, I grew up thinking that was sinful. Listen to only CCM. Um, and so, so evangelicalism kind of had the echo chamber thing <laughs> happening um, uh, for, for a long time. And now we have social media and that can have um, varying impacts. It, it, on the one hand, yes, echo chambers, very much alive and well on Facebook, on Twitter, you can, you can kind of curate your own, um, your own subculture there and your own sources of information. But what I've also seen is that uh, access to information through social media can disrupt the hold that this um, subculture can have, particularly I see that on the younger generation. So back in the 90s and the early 2000s, it was possible to be pretty much wholly immersed in this, in mm -hmm. this world your sources of media, right? Your, your friends and so on. Now it's a lot harder, unless you're in a really kind of conservative wing homeschool kind of subculture. Uh, chances are you're on TikTok. You're on, you know, I look at my students coming into Calvin. Now they're different. They're um, uh, exposed to way more ideas than even 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and, and so it kind of disrupts this. What, what I've also seen is, and I've, I've experienced this now with Jesus and John Wayne too, because Jesus and John Wayne has kind of lived in those social media spaces. If you're on Twitter, uh, it's, it's been the topic of much conversation for the last 10 months on Twitter. It almost feels like you can't read this book without also tweeting about it, uh, which is great for publicity purposes. But what that also does is it disrupts the hold of the gatekeepers, right? Because I don't need Christianity re, uh, today to give it uh, its stamp of approval. I don't need to get into say the gospel coalition to reach readers of the gospel mm. coalition because they would never right, give me that. Yeah. Um, they would not, this is not a book, a book they would like to promote in all likelihood. Um, but because I have Twitter and then because other people are on Twitter and they are, are tweeting about this book, it has, it has really moved through the grassroots. So now it's, it's, it's adult 
Sunday school and pastors groups, and it's moving there. And it's been really fascinating for me to watch that and podcasts, a huge, huge role here (laughs) in spreading the word into smaller kind of niche communities. And, and so, um, there is a democratizing force within social media too. Um, on the one hand, echo chambers, on the other hand, it can, it can open people up, but there's also, it is its own distribution network now. And people like me who didn't have access to these, um, evangelical really power structures, mm-hmm. um, it doesn't really matter because I can still get my message into the hands of people who most need it. So the, the role of social media right now is, is very interesting to me. And I think it, it can move in, in, uh, conflicting directions. Now, it's really positive to hear. And I think when it comes to practice, then, you know, it's, it, this is obviously one, one issue, but there's, there's many different issues in our world, right? And it seems foundational then that we engage with the other, right? That we engage with people who we know we disagree with or who look different than us or have a different perspective. And I mean, that seems to me foundational, the body of Christ in general, that Anytime we get with people who are only just like us, there's the danger that we're going to really sort of lose that direction. And that seems to be a little bit of what was happening here. Like you said, specifically white Christian male seems to be a a direction this went. And when we can branch out, that challenge can kind of come in in a healthy way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, At the end of the book, I talk about how different individuals kind of, uh, left this ideology behind how they worked their way out of it. And, uh, the most common response was, uh, kind of what you're saying, meeting somebody from, from outside this, this world, because, um, on the inside of this world, again, there's this kind of us versus them, like be, be wary of the other, be suspicious, right? If they're not with us, they're against us. And then when, uh, individuals who were raised in this, um, culture met, so maybe you're raised in a strict complementarian uh, environment. And then they met egalitarian couples who were so clearly following Christ in their marriage, in their life, in their work. And that just, that shakes up these, you know, these preconceptions. Now, wait a minute, this is not supposed to happen or for predominantly, uh, or for Christians who have lived in predominantly white spaces to really interact with uh, Christians of color, with black Christians who are drawing on maybe a different um, uh, tradition of Christianity, a more prophetic tradition. And you're seeing the faith lived out in amazing ways in these lives. And you say, this is not what I been told. This is not what I've, what I've heard. Um, and that's, that's a really important moment then, right. To, to make you not just rethink your, your, uh, conceptions of what is good and true, uh, and right, but also ideally the next step is to say, and why didn't I know this? Mm. Why, why haven't I been in these spaces? Why haven't I heard these voices? What have I been missing? Who have I been excluding? And, um, and then, and then take steps to, um, to listen and to learn and, and to build community across these differences. So one of the things that stood out to me as I was reading the book, and I'm, I'm sure this was intentional. If not, then maybe, maybe hopefully the, this question Go will make it. sense. Um, I, I noticed just the, the worst of the, the use of the word denominations and sort of that this was taking place often um, yeah. either outside of denominations or in result, you know, and so yeah. 
you know, for many people listening to this, you may be Catholic and be like denominations, right? Like, you know, we, I just, I go to my local Catholic church for some Protestants. They may say, yes, I, I am CRC or I'm, I currently for the next few days, at least serve at an evangelical covenant church. Mm -hmm. Um, and other people are from non-denominational. We've rejected that. So yeah. Can you talk a little bit about church culture and denomination here and, and it's kind of yeah. the role that was playing in your mind as you wrote, because it, mm -hmm. it just stood off the page to me. Yeah. So historically evangelicalism has, has, it's never been contained within denominations, right? You can point to quote unquote evangelical denominations. So, you know, the SBC, which technically they say we're not a denomination, but they're essentially the largest evangelical denomination uh, and, and, you know, assemblies of God. And uh, there's, there's a, a whole variety of, of denominations that we can consider evangelical. The Christian reformed church technically is, you know, a member of the national association of evangelicals. And, uh, but, the thing about evangelicalism is particularly when I study it, um, you know, as a, as a popular culture, um, uh, it is not constrained by denominational boundaries, not, not in the least. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have a lot of mainline churches that use evangelical literature in their, um, in their churches, in their youth groups, in their, their women's Bible studies. Um, we have a lot of mainline Christians who listen to Christian radio and watch religious programming on television. And that's how this works. So, you know, I, in my, um, in my book, I, I talk about this and how, you know, to consider evangelical as opposed to mainline really doesn't make sense because we have a ton of evangelicals sitting in pews in mainline churches. Mm. Um, and similarly, you can see it's through this popular culture, largely, that these influences spread across national boundaries, too. So I've been hearing a lot from Canadian evangelicals saying, you know, the context is different here, but we see the influences here. We see, you know, this has infiltrated, this crosses borders. I've heard from uh, evangelicals in the UK, in China, in Australia, in Kenya, in Brazil, all writing to me after uh, this book came out and saying, uh, this is our story too now. And this is being received into our local context. And we might have our own patriarchal traditions to contend mm -hmm. with, and we have our own circumstances here. Uh, but it through popular culture um, and, and through the distribution networks, not just of missionaries, but of radio and of um, uh, you know, Christian publishing very, very little in the way of Christian publishing is, is kind of local. When you look in the global church, it, a lot of it's imported like 70, 80%. And so these ideas just spread across denominations, um, beyond denominations. And I make the case in the book, uh, it can spread. You don't even have to attend church to be pretty fully exposed to, um, many of these teachings. Yeah. And ultimately, one of the to, to sort of change direction a little because this to one more thing that really sort of stood out to me with all of this was I love the book of Revelation and looking at the critique of empire and the situation of these five churches that had sort of compromised and join in and two were that were persecuted for not sort of joining in the system of the day. And I couldn't help but hear Pax Romana in my head sometimes as we were talking about God and country and nationalism and just the idea that in the first century, well, and not just the first century, this idea that, hey, if we could make everyone Roman, 
then the world will be at peace. And it's our duty to make the world Roman and anyone who stands against the empire is against it. And anything new is dangerous, which is why part of the reason why Jesus was crucified by this empire. Um, what kind of, I mean, I, I would think the danger would be obvious, but in evangelicalism, it's the, it's actually the opposite, but I would think that there would be a danger when we say our faith is so tied up in the defense and the support of a specific nation, but mm -hmm. the system in the other direction is actually, no, 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 to follow Jesus is to defend your country against any enemy. Can, for a few minutes, can you just take us into that and sort of, I guess the danger and how it got to be so conflated. Yeah. So again, in the cold war context, uh, communism was deemed a threat and understandably. So it was a military threat and communism was seen as anti God, anti family and anti nation. So all the things that evangelicals held most dear, right. And, and again, legitimate military threat, and it was a legitimate concern. Um, but then this, this defensive mode moves to the center of evangelical identity and the conflation of, of, of Christian Christianity and nationalism, this, this belief in a Christian America, which by the way, I, I, I take some time in the early in the book to, to sketch out that this is, this was not always a given in conservative Protestantism in the United States, right? In the early 20th century, you had many conservative Protestants who rejected Christian nationalism. They rejected the idea of Christian America because to be Christian meant to have your soul saved and look around the country. Didn't look super Christian, right? Yeah. 1920s look around. Um, so, so that just didn't make a, a lot of sense. And, and you had um, conservative Protestants who were pacifists in the first world war. It was liberal Protestants who were more likely to embrace militarism at that time. And I just, I really wanted to show that because otherwise some of these things just feel inevitable. And it just seems like, well, that's just what Christians do, right? That's just, that just, that's, how things work, uh, but it's not. You have to see how it develops and how uh, it's kind of um, coming out of the First World War, liberal Protestants were chastened. Uh, it wasn't a war to end all wars. Um, conservative Protestants came out increasingly militant and militaristic and kind of proud of that. And um, by the Second World War, that's you know, the good war. And uh, conservative Protestants uh, really kind of moved to embrace that war. Uh, and then, and then of course the cold war, that's, that's when, um, these, these values really start to align. So what's the danger in this? Uh, one of the dangers is that when you conflate Christianity and the American nation, uh, that you, it becomes really hard to critique, uh, the American nation. It, it becomes really hard to critique any actions. And this is what we see happening in the 1960s. Uh, because in the 1950s, you know, late 40s, 1950s, I said evangelicals were, you know, anti-communists and pro, you know, traditional family values and all this stuff. But they weren't so different from most other Americans. This was the Cold War consensus era. This was the post-war baby boom, right? Leave it to beaver time. Uh, so they felt really, you know, kind of at the center of things, um, like they were leading America after being, you know, marginalized or feeling marginalized. Uh, they had Billy Graham, this national celebrity. Billy Graham was in and out of the White House with Eisenhower, right? All of a sudden, really at the center of things. But it, it was it was fleeting because in the 1960s, what happens is a lot of Americans start to question these values. Um, so we have the feminist movement. I already mentioned the civil rights movement, um, but then also uh, Vietnam and the anti-war movement. 
And what we see happening is uh, a lot of Americans start to question, um, you know, patriarchy and question American goodness and American greatness um, and for good reason. And this is when evangelicals really double down, uh, embrace militarism and Christian nationalism and patriarchy as this oppositional identity, right? And they see themselves as a faithful remnant because they felt the country kind of slipping away. And um, what happens then is it becomes really difficult to critique American power, to critique atrocities committed by American soldiers on the battlefield of Vietnam. Right? There's this poignant example of Billy Graham on this topic uh, in the book. Uh, it becomes really um, almost impossible to, to critique American goodness, American greatness. Um, and, and they have to like revive this myth of Christian America and locate themselves at the center of that. And then that, what that ends up doing is again, seeing themselves as a faithful remnant, it's up to them to preserve and restore this, um, this mythical American greatness. And this is starting to sound a little familiar, right? Mm -hmm. To make America great again. And, um, but how that is done is not um, to go back and be really critical and say, when has this nation fallen short of its ideals? Mm -hmm. You know, let's look at, at systemic racism. Let's look at sexism. Let's look at empire um, manifest destiny. And let's, let's try to bring our, our um, reality in line with our ideals. That's not what we're talking about here. Instead, it, it's presenting a heroic narrative um, where, where white Christians are always the heroes and, and trying to um, uh, kind of assert that and uh, on, on our contemporary nation. So again, this ability to critique America's shortcomings and also to critique Christians' shortcomings is really lost. And I think that is where we are today, that many um, Christians feel very defensive right? If Christianity is um, held up and critiqued. I mean, this book, <laughs> the subtitle is, is a little harsh, right? It's, it's kind of you know, making clear that we're, we're going to go there. It's uh, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. And what has been really encouraging to me is that many Christians are ready to go there. They are ready to say, yes, something has gone deeply wrong. And let's take a careful look at our own history and at our nation's history and the role that we've played. Um, so that's been really encouraging. Yeah. Well, I think all you have to do is glance at any book of the new Testament and you'll, you'll see the writer critiquing the church and critiquing exactly. the system. And so this is not outside of our tradition. But I mean, look at Paul, right? He has, to, I, or look at yeah. Jesus. He says, Hey, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Basically you're not a church anymore. That's, right. that's pretty critique. You know, that's pretty uh, hard, but that was, it was out of love. It was out of wanting to bring something better and to bring yeah. justice and to bring peace. Exactly. And, you know, and again, I was just hearing fear again, in, in not in what you were saying, but in, in mm -hmm. what you were saying about the system and just realizing again that we're invited to uh, love, we're invited to trust that the, the tomb's already empty, right? And so, yes. uh, so victory's already been won. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, this is, we're, we're getting theological here, but this is, this is true, right? That, um, so my, my favorite quote in the book comes towards the end and it's a quote from Rachel Den Hollander. And she was the first witness in the Larry Nassar case right, on mm. sexual abuse of, um, gymnasts. Um, but she also is a conservative evangelical. And then she turned her attention also to abuse within conservative churches and communities. 
And uh, evangelicals loved her when she was critiquing Larry Nassar. And then when she turned her, her critique um, towards the church, not so much. Uh, in fact, she and her husband ended up having to leave their church um, over her advocacy. And, um, and she has a powerful uh, victim statement and then a follow-up interview um, uh, in terms of her testimony in the Nassar case, in which she says, um, God does not need your protection. Jesus Christ does not need your protection. And she was talking specifically about efforts to cover up abuse in uh, Christian circles in order to defend or protect the witness of the church, right? The ministry, there's always all this, this, this rationale for why just keep it quiet, cover it up. Don't expose, um, our dirty laundry to the world. Just, just keep it, keep it quiet. She said, Jesus Christ does not need your protection. Uh, Jesus only asks for your obedience. And what does obedience look like? Telling the truth and doing justice. And I think that's right. That's that to me is the moral center of my book. Um, the explanation of my book, really why it exists, um, what it's trying to do. And, and happily I've seen, you know, many people receive it in that spirit with, with incredible humility actually. And, you know, I've seen reviewers call it uh, a work of lament and of hope and, and to get that it's a hard read, right? It's, it's, it's a difficult read. Um, there's a lot to grieve here. And a lot of, uh, I think a lot of people are, are, confronting their own complicity in this, um, and through reading this book, but to see that ultimately it is a book of, of hope, um, and a call to faithfulness, uh, is, is just really encouraging to me as a writer that that was, that that came through. And I, and I like that piece. I think, you know, I usually ask people to sort of give a final word, but that, that seems like a perfect one because yeah. to sort of reflect, not just on how this has affected others, but to self-reflect and say, yeah. where have I participated? How have I been shaped by this? So I, I think that's a beautiful last word. Do you, do you have another final encouragement or challenge you'd like to offer? I feel like you just gave a great one. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that really does sum it up. And then, you know, the final, final add on, I, I guess, would be that, um, that it takes courage, right? It takes courage. And Rachel Den Hollander is a great example of that. We have many examples, but right now the, uh, the American church is in a difficult place. Uh, you know, there's talk of an evangelical reckoning, deep, deep divides have been revealed. And these divides cut through churches, they cut through families, through communities, and, um, and it's, it's a really difficult time. It's a, it's a difficult time to confront this truth and to speak this truth. And so I think it's a time for courage. It's a time for, for grace. And, uh, it really is a time, um, to, to speak, uh, because we can see here, what history shows us is this impulse to, um, show deference to authority, this impulse to cover up what is not right in order to protect an individual to protect a ministry, to protect, you know, quote, unquote, the witness of the church, it has the absolute opposite effect. And we see so many people leaving the church right now, leaving evangelicalism, leaving their own churches, uh, because they cannot stomach what seems to them that they, this hypocrisy. Um, and the more that we can speak truth, all of us, and the more that we can acknowledge our complicity, we find community that way we find hope. And, um, and, and so I just, you know, final word, encourage people to, to wrestle with this and then to speak truth as, as they feel called. Amen to that. Well, I will be putting a link to the book in the description below. So I do highly recommend going and checking that out. Now, 
I highly recommend doing that anytime, but the week this releases specifically, can you tell people what's going on so that hopefully they go and get it right after listening to us discuss yeah, this Yeah, yeah, great. Thanks for that little pitch. Uh, so the paperback is releasing on June 8th. And uh, this is kind of exciting for us. Uh, my publisher's going to put a lot of energy into that. They have a little plan. They think there's a shot of making the New York Times bestseller list. Yay. And uh, they want to do that to really kind of establish this book as uh, a book to be reckoned with, a book that will will kind of stand the test of time and um, and continue to live well into the future. So yeah, if you want to get a book, uh, they're cheap now and they are, uh, available and, uh, the first week is, uh, is really critical. Well, friends go get your copy right away. I know it'll challenge you and encourage you and where else, if they want to find out other things you're up to, where else might people be able to connect online or see what else you are doing? Sure. I have a website where I put a lot of my um, writing, some podcasts and things like that. It's kristindumez.com. So K-R-I-S-T-I-N-D-U-M-E-Z, like dumez.com. Um, but mostly I'm on Twitter and Facebook, especially Twitter. And both of those, my handle is at K-K-Dume. So K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. And um, I post relentlessly. <laughs> so if you're ever wondering what I'm thinking at the moment, you can find it there. And if you're in high school, consider going to Calvin University where you can have Professor Dumay as a professor. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, study history, study, uh, study anything with us. I, I teach U.S. history. I teach uh, women and gender and uh, have fabulous students. So check us out. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you are busy right now with school and everything going on with the book. So I really appreciate you taking the time to come here. This was an honor. It was a lot of fun. And I, I think it's going to bless those who hear it. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey friends, Phil here again. Before you go, I just wanted to say thank you once again for joining us for this conversation. I pray that you find yourself blessed, challenged, encouraged, and intrigued to dig deeper into this important history that continues to unfold today. Of course, you can find the book at the link below as well as Dr. Kristen's website. And then friends, if you are looking for more ways to intentionally make space to connect with God, to connect with your story, the present moment, and others, then I also recommend you check out the link for our Rua Space memberships below, where we offer Christian yoga and guided prayers, meditations, and more. And if you've been blessed by this ministry, I would also love if you'd consider checking out the link for Patreon below, where you can help support Rua Space for just a few dollars a month and gain access to some really cool exclusive content. So thanks again for being with us, friends. We look forward to seeing you next time. Grace and peace be with you.